Hey everyone, it's Raghu. I'm back with Mind Rolling, and I, uh, my guest today. We've we've been working on this for a long time trying to get together, and so welcome to Mind Rolling, Sarah King. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you for having me, Raghu. I I appreciate that our time space continuum was finally <laughs> able to merge in this moment. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Uh, I mean, to go into all of your endeavors, accomplishments, studies is, uh, you, you are, I actually just described you uh, to a friend of mine uh, who I was just talking to, say, well, I got to do a podcast, I'll call you back, but it's with, and I went on, and this is a real renaissance woman, for sure, for sure, for sure, <laughs> and work in neuroscience, work with mindfulness, work with social justice, uh, teaches yoga, med- meditation, and founded Mind Heart Consulting, which is a key thing, and yes. you're going to tell us about that in a bit. But before any of that, I really want to hear how the causes, basically the causes and conditions that formulated you, we can't go into karma and past lives because it's beyond, way beyond the old pay grade, but uh, just you know, where, where you're from and, and how you got formed and uh, the things that you went through and, uh, and then coming out to understand there was a separate reality from the one we all thought we were in, right? Yeah, mm-hmm, tell, tell mm-hmm. us uh, the this, this story, your story. Mm. Um, well, I really appreciate uh, the gentleness with which you have inquired um, about my life story. And, um, you know, I think that I had something of an unusual upbringing and, and background. Um, as an African-American child, I grew up with my, my mother, who's a single mother, I have two older siblings who are much older than me. Um, mm. My sister's eight years older than me, and my brother was 13 years older than me, so I was definitely the baby of the mm. family. Um, and my mother was a um, an ardent learner. Uh, she studied nutrition in college and was a former Black Panther. Mm. Um wow. I, I recall, you know, going to bed at night and her telling me stories about meeting my brother's father and the Vietnam War starting and the two of them being Black Panthers and deciding to become conscientious objectors and fleeing to Canada in order to evade the draft. Um, and from there, uh, her decision to uh, move to Israel and uh, live in the Negev, she in fact did what I think is referred to as uh, Aliyah. Uh, she had no intention on returning. Um, and she would love, she loved to tell me stories before I went to bed about attempting to start a feminist revolution in the society that she was living in uh, uh, outside of Jerusalem at the time, which got her in quite a, quite a great deal of, of, of trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> She, she, she loves to tell this story about uh, being stranded in the middle of the Negev desert for, after escaping uh, a prison while she was um, 
pregnant with my brother at the time and being discovered by a group of archaeologists who picked her up and kind of hoisted her away. And then she escaped Israel to come back to the United States. And I was um, conceived in Venice, California. Uh, you know, so it's just, you know, I, I just, um, I remember listening to those stories when I was a child and um, she had a lot of how shall I say, my compassionate outlook on my mom and her journey is that I, I really view her as a shaman. She was a shaman, such a gentle, sensitive heart. And I think that for her being born in the thick of Jim Crow segregation in Virginia um, and the racism that she faced um, as a second class citizen, um, really tested something in her heart and her spirit that resulted in a series of um, mental illnesses. Mm -hmm. So I'm a child who grew up with um, a mother who really saw the world through a, uh, what I would describe as a fragmented reality. Uh, so we moved around a lot. We were homeless a lot, a lot. I probably went to definitely more than a dozen schools before I hit high school. Oh my. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, so there was something very transient in nature about my upbringing. Uh, I remember there would be times when I would come home from school and she would say, hurry up, we got to get out of here. The police are coming to evict us. And she would literally take what little possessions that we had, that I had, uh, throw them in a dumpster, um, and we would go running to uh, like a local bus stop or something like that. And from there, we would be pitched into like a battered women's shelter or a homeless shelter. And I would have um, this feeling of ungroundedness, like... I felt that I had been born into a reality where things like a home, a stable home or a car or regular food to eat were not realities for me. Uh, and that caused a certain kind of existential tension inside of me. I had this feeling like, you know, one more bad thing could happen and that'd be it. How old are you, Sarah, in this time? Oh, this was, um, I would say that this, this period of protracted homelessness was between the ages of six and 13. Um, and that was the point when I was 13 and we were actually living in Minnesota at the time um, uh, that my mother left. And I was by myself a homeless kid uh, in the streets of um, St. Paul in Minneapolis, Minnesota. A lot of my classmates fortunately would take me into their attics and their basements and kind of feed me and house me where their parents didn't know where I was until I was inevitably, you know, discovered because there was like a pile of, of chips somewhere where it wasn't supposed to be. And I was, and I was kicked out. Um, so that was the point at which my family in Southern California 
discovered what my reality was and took me in so that I could finish the remainder of high school. Um, and I finished high school in the infamous city of Compton, California. Mm. So that's all to say that, um, the feeling of impermanence really pervaded my body, my life growing up. And I had to find ways of um, anchoring to my experience of existing in the world in a way that allowed me the idea that it might be possible um, to live a life of thriving one day. Uh, and for me, books were it books. Mm -hmm. I, no matter where I was, I mean, you could find me whether I was in a homeless shelter or like hiding out in a library all day. Cause my mom had no um, childcare. I would just have like 10 or 12 books about every subject you could possibly imagine. And I really immersed myself, um, in the reality of story and storytelling it was a phenomenal way to transport myself to new dimensions of imagination and to just sort of surmise for a moment that the story that was being played out in my life was not the totality of me. Mm. It gave me just a window of thinking, a window of an idea that, um, that what I was experiencing was different from who I was. And I think that was a real lifesaver for me. Very young when this, the, this thought came, I would say, right? Oh, yes, exquisitely so. Um, I remember being uh, five years old, sitting in a patch of grass and this was when we were living in, um, I think we were in um, San Diego at this point, we were really all over the country. And I, I just remember getting really low to the ground. And for hours, I would try to tell myself stories in the voices of the flowers and the grass. Mm. I would ask myself things like, well, what, does the sun have to say to me? What stories does the sky have to tell me? What, what are the trees trying to communicate to me? And I really, I think it was like between my, uh, the way that I engaged with the story of the earth around me and the stories of the books that I read that held me in this sense of possibility that there was more, more universes of more in everything that I looked at. And I just had to, I had to maintain that feeling of connectedness um, in order to discover the expansiveness of my being. Mm. A real causes and conditions that created transformation. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's exactly. a, as much, of course, the amount of suffering is inordinate, but at the same time, wow. <laughs> Not many people have this especially at that kind of very, very early age. 
I actually, I actually recall a certain um, weariness that I had as a child, very young. This, this, this sensation that I had of I'm back again, mm. again. There was a againness about my existence that like really was like an itch that was scratching at my consciousness and I couldn't figure out why I felt this feeling of haven't I done this a thousand ten thousand how many times how many times I'm back again in a in a physical corporeal reality it was it really tripped me out as a kid mm. it's a bit like uh, the story of uh, Milarepa and Marpa and building that house over and over and over and over. Mm-hmm, exactly, yeah. Or like the story of Sisyphus, who I think is um, destined to roll a boulder up a mountainside again and again and again. But but what I love about the story of Sisyphus is that when he reaches the top of that mountain or that hill, there's always a moment of pause. Mm. And mm. he takes in the vista, and then he goes back to work for the remainder of time. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. What intrigues me, though, is the the so there was obviously movement towards meditative practices, mindfulness, mm-hmm. but then there was a movement t- for you uh, towards study i mean you have uh, are very accomplished tell me about the movement and what inspired you to move towards neuroscience and its studies Mm. yeah that's that's another really big mystery in my life ragu i i remember being a very uh little child five six years old And I was always trying to help my mother modulate her nervous system. So I have these memories of being six years old and walking over to her. And um, I had had books about the brain at like four or five, six years old. I didn't really understand much other than that. When I was reading about the brain as a child, I I felt a sense of being home. Hmm. I felt a sense of being found and understood by the people who were writing about this thing that I knew was under the skull. Uh, And I remember I would walk up to my mom and I would place my fingers on her skull and I would talk to her about the different areas of her brain. And I would talk to her about the pain she was experiencing in her life. And I remember asking her very pointed questions around like where there was pain or discomfort in her body and her somatic experience. And then trying to make the connection between that and like what area of the brain I thought might be responsible for the experience she was having. Um, I cannot say what in the world drew me to that at such a young mm. age. Um, yeah, I don't know. We, we can ascribe that. We'll have to, as we said earlier, it's beyond the pay grade, but karma <laughs> is a huge ass influence on you. So. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. It does. I once had a psychic tell me that I, <laughs> that I'm, 
I'm living a lifetime uh, in ancient Egypt simultaneous mm. to this lifetime right now. Wow. And that they're, that they're simultaneously occurring and there's something about the choices I'm making in this realm, in this reality, that are a mirror of choices being made in that reality. So who, who knows? I, I am, I'm pretty amused by that idea. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but, you know... My journey um, in undergrad, I went to uh, an an institution called Pitzer College, P-I-T-Z-E-R. And it's a really tiny little school in the Inland Empire of California. And the reason why I went there, I got full scholarships, full rides too. I mean, what college can you think of that doesn't want like a homeless student who's also has straight A's? You know, I was like the package. <laughs> they were like, please, please come uh, to us. Oh, uh, that's cool. Um, and I had started working in prior to college. I, the school that I went to in Compton was a medical magnet high school. So what was special about it was that starting in the 10th grade, if your grades were good enough for one day a week, instead of going to classes, you would go work in the hospital next door. So I had worked in the morgue. Um, I had done work in genetics, uh, parasitology, paleontology, OBGYN, all across the board before I ever even made a step into the university. Uh, So I would say that really being immersed in the study and the practice of healing in the body was very endemic to my education in high school. Um, And I would also say, I would describe myself as an empath. I really, um, I feel like a live wire. I feel everything. I feel everyone Mm. in my environment. Mm. And I think that um, there was something about going from a much more rural setting in the East Coast and in Minnesota where I was. I literally was living on farmland when we did have a home to going to Compton. Um, and I remember within a first within a first few weeks of going to school there, uh, I was wearing a blue t-shirt and a red puffy jacket of my grandma's. And I had no idea about like gang colors or gang affiliation. (laughs) I was just like, I love my grandma. I love her puffy jacket. Blue is my favorite color. (laughs) I didn't know that I was like stepping into like, you know, gang warfare territory that was like confusing with my choice of dress. And I, I just, I, I have this potent memory of standing at the bus stop in Inglewood on my way home from school and these two burly dudes roll up on me looking pissed. I'm just, you know, I'm 13. I'm probably like a hundred pounds in the tiniest little thing. Right. And I remember I was really excited to get home and do some work on AP chemistry. I was like excited. I was like, yes, science, my jam. Mm-hmm. And they roll up on me and the one guy lifts up his shirt and he's got a big old gun underneath it. And he goes, hey, hey, where are you from? Hey, yo, where are you from? And I looked at him and I said, well, I just moved here from Minnesota. (laughs) Um, I live a little bit down the street 
And I gotta say, my bus is about to come and I'm really excited to get home and do my AP chemistry homework. So I'm not really sure what this whole gun thing is about, but can I be on my way? And I remember they just looked at each other and they just started dying of laughter. They were so confused because I, I don't know if this is just my naivete, I was more than being scared in that moment. I was anxious over the thought that they were going to make me late to do my science homework. <laughs> I was like, I need you to get out of my way. I don't know what this gun stuff is. I don't know what you're asking me. I got AP chem to do and I'm on a mission. <laughs> That's a great story. Oh, God. So, uh, my, my, my. Oh. Well, again, you are involved in so many different things and really all around healing one way or the other. And uh, and one of the things that I I've been delving into with various people over time because it's it's and many many people are doing it on podcasts and otherwise around trauma mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. we have had quite a bit of it. That is the one huge share that we have across the world, yes. and that continues although. Right now, we're a little bit of breaking into some blue sky and dancing around, but we'll see. So it seems. So yeah. It seems. So just uh, the way that you integrate mindfulness and, and neuroscience and uh, social justice, and I, I really like the way you talk about uh, the fact that, that how trauma affects all of us in many different ways physiology, psychology, mental health, rela relationships, work, everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, that um, addressing that is extraordinarily important. And there, of course, there are, uh, it's, it's hard for me to imagine there are many, many people, there are not many, many people who are, are, exp are not experiencing trauma. There just mm -hmm. aren't. And those that are, God bless you out there. I don't know. Maybe check on the empathy thing a little bit. <laughs> right. Uh, you know. But yeah, talk about it. And 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 you have described a whole lot of trauma as a child. Uh, you had you have extraordinary karma in that you were able just a God given gift of being able to see into it at a very early age. This is not my whole story by any means. And that, that, that certainly uh, is extraordinary grace in and of itself. And uh, yeah, talk about the, the trauma of, uh, and how you, you've managed to work through all of the different sciences and mindfulness and all of it and, and addressing it with people. I think it would be Everybody would be advised to sit here and listen properly because <laughs> it may help you, us. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you asking me that. And I, in this moment, I'm recalling that um, it was in my PhD program that I started to um, really ask myself a lot of questions around race and racism, um, I discovered that schools today are more segregated now than they have been in the 1970s. Mm. 
And this single discovery perturbed me so deeply because we have all kinds of money, all kinds of policy, all kinds of you know, conversations about race and racism and what's to be done and how are we going to heal this? And it was really, really apparent to me that a cognitive approach was not what was going to get us through this particular entrenched muck and mire. I was really a sense of deep dissatisfaction and doubt that was nagging at me. Um, and I had started my own practice of yoga and meditation when I was 20. And one of the things that I noticed in my own personal experience, whether this was, you know, um, a lot, a lot of time spent in yoga studios, doing yoga on my own, really all over the world, wherever I found myself. Um, in my practice, I met with pain not just suffering, but real physical, emotional, psychological pain. Uh, and by the time I got to my PhD program, I would say that I was like six or seven years into my practice and the pain, the physical pain, particularly the chronic pain was unabating. One of the things that I noticed is I started taking a training at Spirit Rock um, it was a mindfulness and yoga teacher training at the same time, which I thought was really fortunate. And one of the things that I noticed, it was an incredibly diverse group. Um, I noticed that many practitioners of color would have a physically hard time being in the same space of practice with white-bodied practitioners and teachers. And my surface level thought was, well, hey, we've all come here with the same purpose and intentionality. We wanna expand our practice. Our practice is all about empathy and loving kindness and forgiveness and you know, equanimity. And how do we embody that? How do we feel into that on a somatic level? And yet there is so much tension there's so much pain and it was in the atmosphere. And that was when I started to think to myself, what if trauma is not necessarily some explicit, clear life event like homelessness or you know, having a gun pulled on you at a bus stop? Those, those are moments where we can be like, okay, yeah, yeah, that's, very traumatizing. Is there something happening at a deeper, more cellular level that we can examine? And that was when I happened upon the work of uh, Peter Levine and Bezel van der Kolk and Dr. Stephen Porges. And when I started to take a deep look at the nervous system, I realized that our nervous system's root intelligence, part of its root intelligence is its capacity to other. That is the most fundamental, um, fundamentally ingrained inherent function of the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system, the peripheral nervous system, central nervous system, the brain. And it boils down to 
within our evolutionary history, uh, I was watching a, a brilliant science show that was talking about, they, they proposed that the very beginnings of consciousness was when multicellular organisms first started to move about in their environment, what they wanted was sustenance and they wanted more of it in order to be able to grow. So how do you get more sustenance? How do you get more food? Well, you have to grow eyes because you gotta be able to see. What do you gotta see in your environment? You don't only wanna be able to see the food, you wanna be able to see danger because while you're getting out there to forage for more food, more energy, more resources, there's also things that wanna eat you, right? So built into our nervous systems is this whole survival-based drive of, I gotta be able to figure out who is safe. So at first it was like, I need to figure out who's gonna wanna eat me or take over my territory, you know, saber-toothed tiger, all of that, right? Those were the dominant stressors in life was like warring neighboring tribe who might wanna take my family out or giant creature that wants to eat me. And our nervous systems adapted to be able to figure that out, to sense, to actually take what is inside and sensate and project it out into the world. To create a map of our environment, we have maps of our environment and we have maps of who we think we are in our minds. And then that map of the environment comes together with the map of who we tell ourselves we are and we think that this is the self. And that becomes the beginning of a potential cage because we're so busy right nowadays, instead of like saber tooth tigers or like a, maybe like a warring neighboring tribe, depending on your social location. Um, most of the stressors, most of the external stimuli that tells us that we are not safe comes in the form of feeling excluded. There's social stressors. I don't feel seen. I don't feel heard. I don't feel included. I don't feel reflected. I don't feel understood. AKA, I don't feel safe. And that is happening at the layer of our nervous system. And whenever the nervous system is signaling a lack of safety, that's the trauma response. The autonomic nervous system comes online and it's got a really limited set of options that we've all heard of, right? We wanna fight, right? So maybe fighting is avert and it looks in the form of like actual physical violence or aggression, or it looks like getting into an argument, mm. disagreeing, shutting down our capacity to hear the other person out and just getting really entrenched in righteousness, rightness, right? We wanna flee, we wanna run away. That might look like actually running away, maybe if you're a track athlete or if you're actually running from some kind of danger. But oftentimes the way that I teach that that shows up is it looks like not being present. Your body might be in the room, but where are you? You're somewhere else. Maybe you're in your thoughts. You're somewhere in the future or the past, some imagined narrative. You're anywhere other than in your body in the moment. It might look like fainting, but most of us are not gonna faint in the middle of a conversation, right? And so that can show up as what typically gets talked about as appeasement, 
right? We just want to do whatever is in our power to be liked. Please like me, please accept me, please show me that I belong. And that means a lot of potentially giving your power away, um, not having healthy boundaries, uh, being a people pleaser, being addicted. It looks like addiction. We get really addicted to our own internal trauma response. Habitual patterns. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The othering that we do, I, I talked about it in terms of that othering is inside us. We are mm -hmm. othering inside ourselves. We're yes. creating that polarization. We don't even have to go outside of ourselves. That's no. So obviously straightening that out first is a very important thing. And, absolutely, uh, yeah. absolutely. And yeah. I would say that that would be the connection for me with awareness practices because... Um, and how I'm relating awareness practices to social justice. Uh, because I think that we've had, we have a lot of externalized efforts to bring about justice in our world. And sometimes that can turn into a certain kind of escapism where we're not applying our awareness to the othering that is arising, even at the level of our thoughts. Exactly. All of the time. Uh, so for me, I like to say as of late, I have a, a way that I define justice. And I like to say that justice is loving awareness in action. It's loving awareness. Uh, we, we have to say that you are repeating almost word for word what Ram Das has represented. Of course, you know mm. of our, where we come from and all that. Absolutely. Word for word for mm. many years before he left. Mm. in Maui at these retreats we used to run and whatever else he would do online, et cetera, et cetera, right. was exactly that, loving awareness. And he would say, first thing you need to do is move out of, and he'd point to his head, out of the story, out of the ego, out of the belief, belief and thoughts into the center of one's being mm -hmm. and take a few, three breaths in and move consciousness into a place there is no judgment, there is loving awareness. So, yeah. you, you just, and um, one of the things that I, you know, really wanted to uh, have you talk about here, and again, my own interest in neuroscience is very, um, it's not something I've dealt into. Uh, myself in terms of learning or anything like that, but I have talked to many different people and who have real experience in that area. And just the idea that, because people get very despondent and depressed about 
shit, I'm just reliving these habitual patterns over and mm. over. Nothing seems to change. The same neurotic tendencies are still overwhelming me. And maybe I'm even aware enough to understand, as you said before, this is, this is something that is, uh, becomes a way of living. You get used to it. And yes. moving into a different area is, is scary. And it mm -hmm. brings up, of course, impermanence. You're so permanently satisfied in this. It's comfortable. It's like a, a bad suit. That <laughs> it doesn't fit right. It's, it's, right. It's, but you're, you're, in my mind, it seems really comfortable. I don't know. Uh, so... I, or like the pair of pajamas that I've been wearing for the past 16 months, yeah, <laughs> which right. should probably be retired at this point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we all have those suits and pajamas in many different forms on yes, a day-to-day -day yes, basis. But yeah. the truth is we can change. And That's and this study and, and what His Holiness the Dalai Lama has been instigating and working with Richie Davidson and ma many, many others that you know, Mm -hmm. uh, I th everyone should s calm down. It you can change, but I need you, Sarah, to give us some pointers. Okay, uh, first about the reality uh, of, of these neurons that can change, and then pointing to what are the things that one can do to uh, to make that change happen in one's life so it's it's a practical thing not a uh, something one reads about absolutely um yeah i mean if i were to start out from like a sort of like a structural point of view looking at brain function like what is happening when i describe this uh, this trauma intelligence that's alive in our body what is happening when we go into a fight flight, freeze, and faint. Um, and how can I connect this to a mindfulness practice? Usually when we're going into this trauma response, it's described as reactivity, right? And so when people are talking about, oh, these habitual ways of being, they're talking about the autonomic nervous system. And I remember my daughter asking me, that, she was like, that sounds like automatic. And I was like, mm -hmm. exactly. You're mm. just on automatic. It's almost like mm. you are mm. a helpless marionette and you're just sort of at the mercy of your nervous system, which is just reacting to whatever stimuli that you are perceiving as inherently not safe or threatening in that moment. And what happens inside of the brain, right? Your amygdala is probably firing like crazy. Your, um, your hypothalamus, your pituitary gland, um, so many different interconnected systems like the insula, which is responsible for picking up on a lot of emotional salience cues, right? They start to really hijack the prefrontal cortex. So our prefrontal cortex really comes online with a lot of executive functioning, a lot of those kinds of um, what some people might call logical thoughts that can really ground you and orient you in the moment of what is happening in order that you can be responsive rather than reactive, right? 
all that capacity is completely hijacked, but with a mindfulness practice or lots of different somatic practices, the emphasis is on the pause. It's on the silence, it's on the spaces in between. Um, and the more that we can cultivate the capacity to trust, to rest, to relax, really to be held in the spaces in between any arising phenomena is the greater the capacity that our nervous system has to disengage all of that evolutionary reactive functioning that is really tied into the ego that is constantly trying to protect, protect, protect. And we can start to um, really reside in a space that is filled with much more infinite imaginative potential rather than automatic programming, which many times our automatic programming, it's something I'd really love to mention about trauma here. Mm. In my belief, trauma is rarely just about this lifetime. Mm. This mm. is just my belief. I believe absolutely that most agree trauma, with that. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Is deeply intergenerational. But I have a little bit of a different way of looking at intergenerational trauma that I'd love to introduce to your listeners. It's um a way of interacting with and perceiving myself that has been very healing in terms of my capacity to step out of some of that automatic programming and reactivity. Um, I really view myself as an intergenerational self. There's a multiplicity of selves that are arising in my being at any moment in time. So um, I've begun to teach these meditations. Uh, I actually just recorded a series of meditations on intergenerational resilience for Mindful Magazine that will be coming out in the fall. Mm. Uh, and through these meditations, I really invite people to be in relationship with their self as an intergenerational self. And I like to say that we are beings who live at the nexus of the dreams of our ancestors and the memories of our descendants. So at any point in time, we have the capacity to, in the physical corporeal sense, in the spiritual sense, connect with all of our ancestors and all of those who will come after us. And we can invite them into relationship with our being such that our sense of self becomes much more expansive. We have the capacity to really experience the past, present, and the future in this moment in time and to transmit intentionally any of the healing or revealing or transformation that we experience here and now back into the past, forward into the future. And we can become the embodiment of healing catalysts 
for all of the beings, all of the beings, whoever were and ever will be. And I know that that might be a little bit of a radical thing to say as a scientist, but this is maybe me um, speaking more from my beingness rather than my occupation in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. I guess there was one other related to becoming whole. And and this is the path to becoming whole. Mm -hmm. And you also talk about Compassion for ourselves, giving ourselves a permission to feel the things which you have done. But you met this, you met this suffering at a very early age. You went mm-hmm. into training at a very early age, and yeah. you met. You were able to meet up uh, with uh, some unconditionality. I would say mm-hmm. you were not judging. And uh, I'd say to everybody out there, this is possible for all of us. And the essential thing is absolutely, in my mind, to move into, you describe the pause. I know it as uh, through Trungpa Rinpoche all the way, many, many years ago, the gap, he would, the gap, mm. that we all have to engender this gap, this pause. And uh, very well said, Sarah, in terms of being able to um, accommodate, even just accommodate the idea that we can change. Mm-hmm. And then takes practice is another thing that I don't know if there's any episode of mind rolling or what I do with Ramdas, we don't mention it. We, uh, that. You, there's no, you can't be, look at what you did and the accomplishments you had through uh, education and, and focus and purpose and motivation. It can happen. And Absolutely. Uh, so, and, and then my only other thought uh, from something that you said a little earlier around uh, our responsibility to take action Mm-hmm. individually as humans, for, uh, r- related to, of course, social justice. And this is, again, something Ramdas taught for many, many decades. You don't, first of all, going out and uh, trying to change when you have anger in you, trying to change whatever it is you want to change is not going to work whatsoever. But then not trying to do that, uh, because you think that you're still a shmageggy, we would call it in Yiddish, um, is not workable either. Right, and right. and uh, uh, he used to say, operating on more, we can as humans operate on more than one plane of consciousness at the same time. So we work on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And mindfulness is so extraordinarily important so that we can see the different motivations that we have that are self serving. Most of them are on a day to day basis. And uh, through that, and doing the action, we can change there. Uh, yes. It it's t- totally makes uh, real horse sense. And, <laughs> and a little education at the same time about whatever it is that you, you, one is pursuing. 
but it, the the core is the uh, you called it in something I read rampant addiction to othering mm -hmm. that we have. That's the core that that has to be transformed, right? I mean, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A little bit about compassion, though, because uh, that's a difficult thing too. Uh, and uh, you, it, it's interesting because I I put a little couple of notes here and. You know, compassion, allowing oneself to feel what one feels and being honest with it, not trying to run from it uh, and not judging it. At the same time, you talk about sometimes um, there's a masquerade of aggression that acts yeah. as compassion. That I talk about that because that one w went a little over my head. <laughs> So, uh, yes, I did a series of Dharma talks with a good friend and brother and colleague of mine named Rashid Hughes, hmm. um, who runs the Heart Refuge Mindfulness Community in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. So this concept of um, aggression masquerading as compassion is his. Um, I believe he's written about it in Lion's Roar as well as Mindful Magazine. Um, but the essence of the concept is that, you know, a lot of the time we find ourselves gravitating towards a certain movement to support justice, whether that's climate justice, food justice, what, what have you, wherever there is suffering. Many of us in recognition and acknowledgement of our interdependence gravitate towards where that area of suffering is with the intentionality of doing, doing something about it. So there may be some stories that we tell ourselves around our belonging in whatever this zone is, the way that we belong because we have compassion. Mm. But there's something that I've noticed uh, in my work um, I recently co-directed the very first embodied social justice certificate program with Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. Mm. It was amazing. We thought we'd get maybe 100 students, over 700 students Oh, really? Signed Online? Up. Yes. Mm. Wow. From all over the world, every different kind of social location and identity you could possibly imagine. And on the surface, one would presume that everyone had showed up out of compassion because they recognize suffering. And there's a recognition that justice doesn't live somewhere out there. It's in the body. We have to feel it in order to be in relationship with it. Something that I saw and that I continue to see is that... particularly if you come from an identity background where the information that you have received about who you are, the self, this body, is that you are oppressed. And there's truth with a little T, a little T to that oppression. One can become, and I say this with so much gentleness, one can become addicted 
to this perspective, it's a perspective that one is oppressed. And in the service of compassion, supposedly, one can begin to seek punitive action, seek to punish. I want to punish those who are hurting me and people like me. There can be a flavor of revenge. And I say this very carefully uh, because in a way I understand, I understand why a people coming from a background of four or 500 years of unmitigated violence would wanna push back and push back hard, right? Um, so for the people who identified as white, white body people in that space, sometimes they would speak up when they identified um, the trauma they were living with in their bodies. I had a, a one um, woman who was a, a German woman who connected really deeply with the intergenerational trauma of having Nazis in her family background. She'd never connected with it in her body before. It was kind of a, it was up here, lots of thoughts. You saw it drop down and the tears just <laughs> like a river, right? My inclination was to meet with that river of tears with compassion, person to person. You just connected authentically with centuries of pain and the oppression of being an oppressor in your family background. I feel for you. That's my response. There were other people who had another response and they said, no, you no, we don't care. We don't wanna hear that. We don't wanna hear about your pain. Mm. This is our mm. time. We are the genuine oppressed. There's no space mm. here. Your pain is now dominating over the experience of our pain. And it becomes this strangely competitive yeah. thing. Mm. So in that moment, it's it, I had to marvel where I was like, okay, I know that we say we've all shown up here from a place of compassion for where it's hurting. But the reality of the felt experience that's arising in my body right now, what I feel is the energy of retribution and punishment. And my sense is that that's just a continuation of the same exact forces of samsara, if you will, that got us here to begin with. So that can't be the path. It just can't yeah. be. Yeah. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Well, I, I, we're kind of at the end, but I was, I wanted to talk a little bit about Meta. Then I just thought, wait a minute, there's nothing to talk about. How about you, you do a little meditation with us, lead us? Can you? Oh, for yeah. Just a few minutes. Yeah, yeah. I think that would be um, really lovely because we've dropped into a lot yeah. um, in this space. And for those of you who are listening and 
Um, if you find yourself either standing up or maybe even lying down or in a seat somewhere, no matter where you find your body, uh, can we all just take a moment and experience the embodiment of collective solidarity and take three deep breaths together. And as you feel those inhales and exhales rushing through the lungs, you might begin to sense into where the body is connecting with the earth in this moment. And there may be a little bit of a sense of dropping in. And you may find it helpful to notice if there are any areas of the body where you're experiencing some kind of holding sensation, a little bit of tension. Can we just gently notice and take those places in, acknowledge them? I see you. I hear you. I feel you. When we participate in the offering of seeing and hearing and feeling our bodies as they are in this moment, Is there anything in the experience of your awareness which expands or settles? And perhaps we might draw our awareness to the bottoms of our feet and notice if the right foot or the left foot is a little heavier or a little lighter in the way that it's meeting with the earth. perhaps noticing and recognizing the difference between the right and the left foot. Opens up a space for the, the right side of the body or the left side of the body to begin to rest just a little bit. And if there are any particular thoughts that are arising in the mind, perhaps we might engage with those thoughts as being much like clouds in the sky. And those clouds can take on any number of shape or color. Maybe the clouds are big and puffy and white. 
Maybe they're pink and purple and golden tones, much like a sunrise or a sunset. And here we are, laying on a bit of grass, on a stretch of sand, or maybe just in your bedroom or your living room. Watching the clouds go by through the open window of your mind. Let's take one more deep inhale and exhale here and notice if you've been holding the muscles of the belly tight toward the spine. See if you can allow the muscles of the belly to loosen. And notice what happens when we give this somatic indication that it's okay to let go just a little bit. there any sense of vulnerability as strength which pervades the sensations of the body? And now calling our energy and awareness to the center of the heart. tuning into whatever quality of feeling is emerging from the heart in this moment. And maybe we can experiment with leaning back into our chair or the wall or the floor just a little bit. And when you lean back, feel that it is possible to make contact with any and all of your ancestors and your ancestral line. What does it feel like to make contact? Lean in. And then maybe bringing our attention to the front side of the heart. And leaning forward ever so slightly with so much gentleness. Can we make contact with our descendants? In the space of this connection, we may want to send the breath Is there anything that you'd like to share? Some bit of radiant light that you'd like to emanate now from your heart. 
back into your ancestral line or forward to the descendants of this earth. You might even begin to see this light radiating and emerging in the center of the heart. Much like a lighthouse. Can you take the entire body into your awareness now? Remaining connected to this emanation of healing light pouring forth from the heart center. Connecting you to the feeling of being an intergenerational being. Maybe we can sit in the silence now for a moment in a space of sacred pause. whatever the ancestors had to share with you of their journey. Can we bow to them for dreaming us into being? And whatever information that our descendants might have shared with us in this moment. May we bow toward them for remembering us into being. Just feeling into any sense of gratitude for being alive. for being the embodiment of intergenerational healing. And whenever you're ready at your own pace, you might begin to slowly open the eyes if they were closed, allowing color and awareness flood back into your vision. Maybe even feeling grateful for the colors themselves as they paint a portrait of this world as it's ever-changing. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for having me, Raghu. 
I'm so happy that uh, we made it finally. We made it. We, made it. <laughs> uh, we created a wormhole and we traveled through it towards yeah, one another. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so great. Uh, everybody, everything we're, we've discussed will be in show notes and links. And um, um, this won't be the last time, no matter what. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> Sarah's got to be a regular, as far as I'm concerned. So great to have you. This is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and you can hear other phenomenal... Did, were you with Sharon Salzberg? Have you... You know Sharon? I will be with uh, Sharon Salzberg and Parker Palmer in October. Oh, that's with, what uh, I said. Justin Michael Williams. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. She's, she's my first meditation teacher, Sharon. And a great friend. She's, yeah, oh God, we're all so fortunate, really. Gratitude is the word. Well, we'll see you all next week. And again, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. For-